to Sharp Talk. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Will Hutton. Will Hutton is a columnist for the Observer and Guardian newspapers. He's principal of Hartford College, Oxford, and is the chairman of the Big Innovation Center. Will, um, I'd like to talk to you about many, many things. We haven't got that much time. But first of all, your, your take on the current state of the British economy in these strange pre-Brexit uh, times we're living in. There is a chill settling on the British economy. Uh, it's getting uh, chillier um, by the quarter. Um, you can see it uh, in multiple ways. You can see it in um, the squeeze on real wages. You can see it in the uh, refusal or re of exports to respond to the big fall in the exchange rate. You can see it in the residential and commercial property markets. You can see it in stagnating investment. You can see it in uh, stubbornly frozen productivity. Um, and, uh, and 2022, when real wages will not have increased. This is not a happy picture. You paint a, a pretty bleak picture, but just try and be double advocate. It's not all bad news, is it? I mean, Britain still has relatively low uh, unemployment. We're still a major recipient of uh, foreign direct investment. So it's not all d bad news, is it? Um, I don't see, um, <clears throat> I don't see um, being a recipient of foreign direct investment if it's your companies being bought um, by other companies as a sign of strength, necessarily. Um, I don't, um, of course, you welcome foreign direct investment, but one of the reasons why Britain has been the third biggest country in the world after the United States and China as a, as a recipient of FDI is because of our relationship with the European Union, um, invest in Britain, and you, it's the aircraft carrier effect. And that, of course, is already, you know, the aircraft carrier is whole beneath the waterline and is sinking. Um, so the case for FDI investment in the UK is weakening. Um, yeah, there's a lot of company startups in Britain, um, more than any other country in the European Union. And yes, unemployment is low. However, um, uh, the growth of part-time jobs, um, the growth of um, risky jobs, zero-hour contracts uh, um, is explosive. So non-standard forms of employment are growing very rapidly in Britain. Uh, and standard forms of relatively predictable work are... Uh, under pressure. Um, so I don't think the, uh, I mean, those are the only two measures by which you can kind of tell a good news story. I'm sorry to be so downbeat. Um, I wish I could be more upbeat. Um, uh, strategically, um, to leave the European Union in terms of our trade balance is precisely the wrong thing to do. And, you know, the idea that um, um, deficits of this scale are a source of strength and will make it likely that our trading partners will want to keep their our markets open to them is I think a you know a very bizarre kind of way of thinking about the British economy. Uh, long standing weaknesses um, are there for all to see and growing more acute. Okay then so by way of contrast Will in broad terms, how is the, the Eurozone economy doing? Well I've long thought that the um, I've I've long thought that the uh, that the Eurozone economy was due for a bounce and that's what we're watching I mean the the period after the uh, financial crisis uh, um, fiscal adjustment um, and the pains of actually uh, uh, the pa pains of the euro um, really held Europe back 
But actually, um, since 2011, 2012, we've got the, you know, been consistent, um, uh, not large, but consistent kind of quarter growth, which has now been going on for um, and accelerating. Um, um, you can see it even in a weak economy like Italy, where the growth rate is beginning to look quite good. Um, and I'm my my own view has been, which I've, I've, I said this three or four years ago, um, was that actually um, that the the eurozone countries were in for a bit of a run economic, uh, uh, and that's what's happening. Um, a lot of strengths, um, a, a lot of um, a lot of solid R and D. Um, a lot of um, innovation, a lot of a lot of presence. Paradox, paradoxically, not necessarily in digital platform companies like the Americans have got. You know, the Airbnbs, mm. uh, Facebooks, um, uh, and all that, and all those. Yeah, Amazon, all those. But where where the Europeans are strong actually um, is actually AI, um, robotics, life sciences. Um, some very interesting companies coming through. And of course, the traditional manufacturing strengths are also pretty worthwhile. So you know, and and because the service sector in all these European economies is slightly underdeveloped compared with the Anglo-Saxon economies, scope there too. Once you get labour market reform, which of course the Hartz reforms in Germany mm. kind of have delivered, and I expect Macron to be able to do something similar in France. So I actually am quite bullish about the eurozone. Okay. Let's bring it back to Brexit briefly. You obviously know as a passionate pro-European. That's not a scoop. <laughs> no, a, hardly a scoop. Uh, uh. A, you're a progressive. So what, what is your take on the Labour Party's current position on Brexit? Is it clear? Is it coherent? Does it make sense? Um, <clears throat> if the Labour Party was led by anyone else, by Jeremy Corbyn, um, uh, it would have campaigned much more vigorously um, in the 2016 referendum. And uh, actually all the modelling that the Remainers did always assumed that um, around three-quarters of um, the Labour vote in the 2015 general election would vote um, to remain. I mean, the event only two-thirds did. And uh, that kind of margin of around 10% of the Labour vote um, is around um, a million people. And um, that was the margin of failure. Um, had Corbyn um, campaigned as vigorously as um, any of his predecessors, um, from you know, Neil Kinnick, John Smith, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Ed Miliband, uh, all strong pro-Europeans, um, we have not lost the referendum. Uh, he, is a, he is a man who's went into the division lobby as nearly as, um, I think, he, uh, only Bill Cash, a Tory, rivals um, Jeremy Corbyn's record in voting against Europe. Um, and yet, uh, having done that, um, and actually, you know, believing in a socialist trade policy and all the options to build socialism in one country if one leaves the European Union, bit by bit, I think Corbyn has moved, um, partly because he sees that um, uh, this is a right-wing coup and he shouldn't be on the side of right-wing plotters like Michael Gove and Bernard Jenkin and... William and Jacob Rees-Mogg and, and co. And, and set, so there's that happening. And secondly, I think the union movement is putting enormous pressure on him because they want jobs and growth. And there's less jobs and growth um, outside the EU in a hard Brexit than inside the EU. So he's, 
Keir Starmer is working hard on him, and actually, you know, in June he sacked um, members of the shadow cabinet um, for being in favour of the single market and the customs union. Um, now he is in favour transitionally of both himself, and and open to a conversation about whether that should be, you know, beyond a transitional period and more indefinitely. And of course, um, that is the heart of membership of the European Union. Because once you start talking, you want to stay in the in the research block, and you want to um, sustain defence collaboration, which even the Conservatives want to do. Um, you're really talking about de facto membership of the European Union, um, and he's managing to do that and keep some of the dissidents in the north of England and, and left behind parts of the country who, I mean, really voted for Leave on a kind of fuck it basis, um, and and with some. Um, not so closet um, dislike of foreigners and immigrants he's managing to keep them on side and actually the fact that a man like Jeremy Corbyn could become an advocate for the European Union given his sceptical track record um, would be very persuasive for Labour Eurosceptics so I think Labour's position um, is coherent is strengthening and actually could be the foundations for either a soft Brexit or maybe no Brexit don't underestimate um, Keir Starmer and his quiet work behind the scenes. Okay. Um, a real force for good in these arguments. Mm. But beyond Brexit, the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn, under John McDonnell, is hardly the party of, of Tony Blair, even of, of Gordon Brown. Is the, the current positioning of the Labour leadership sustainable in the long term? It is a party, to be fair, which has uh, obviously generated much support and excitement amongst younger parts of the population, both in terms of attracting new members and also new, new voters. Um, is, but is there some kind of, <coughs> not so much an inconsistency, but a potential <coughs> clash down the line between these young, these young voters, these young supporters of the Corbyn Labour Party, who are also pro-European, and the traditional Labour Party, which is now led by people like Corbyn and MacDonald? Well, um, this is hard to read. Um, uh, when the referendum, when the um, manifesto was published, and I read all 20,000 words of it, I was, you know, I, I thought, I, I, I thought um, it would be, uh, uh, I, I thought one could make progress. You know? I mean, I think I could, one, 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 one can build on this. Um, and uh, he spoke authentically, and there's a great, I mean, whatever you may think about that, he spoke with, he spoke with authenticity about um, his case. He couldn't be embarrassed by wanting taxes to go up or to go up because he believes in it and everyone knows he believes in it. So there's a bit of that. There was also the youth. And I think that the under 35s are heavily pro-system change and heavily pro the EU. And actually, um, in a, with, faced with indifferent choices, they went for um, Corbyn. I mean, I know um, at a party in Chelsea immediately after the general election, full of investment bankers and commercial property people, um, uh, was astonishing because all of them had voted for Corbyn because they wanted a, a soft Brexit and Kensington and Chelsea returned a Labour MP for the first time since whenever and actually they didn't want the lunatic uh, hardline hard Brexiteer Tory and actually they have some in the House of Commons who will vote for a soft Brexit and actually what's happened the voters for Kensington and Chelsea have been validated by their choice um, Keir Starmer has the leverage 
in the House of Commons to move the country in the direction those, those, those hard-headed private equity and commercial property people thought would happen. So in a way, democracy is kind of working. But you say this democracy is working <coughs> and all these Chelsea-based um, investment bankers voted for Corbyn because they wanted a soft Brexit. But there's a, as you know also, there's an argument out there that the, the centre ground in British politics is underrepresented um, uh, and therefore people haven't had many options to live or the lesser two evils maybe in the case of Corbyn and May. Oh, well, so, undoubtedly. <laughs> but but that, therefore the my question to you is, to what extent is there a case to be made for a new, some, some kind of new centre party, or basically are people now in British politics located on the, on the, on the, even on the far right and the far left, and there's, no, there's a centre ground which is, which is empty, but it's not really populated by anybody? Well, um, beware this language of the centre ground. I mean, I, uh, I mean, a lot of people always describe me as a radical centrist, and I've, that's probably true. I've always, felt, I've always thought it as a kind of very narrow kind of political isthmus, there's not many people else on the peninsula with me. Um, and I, uh, uh, I, think, I, think, I think Britain could reproduce what happened in France. I think it, were the political system kinder, I think a Macron or a Macron effect could come through in um, Britain. I mean, because in a sense that's what the French did. Um, but it's the first past the voting system um, and the way kind of our public conversation is framed by very right-wing media makes it much harder for there to be a centrist party. The uh, argument is, is actually for um, enlightenment values broadly framed, um, the public interest, tolerance, rule of law, um, respect for diversity, um, evidence-based um, argument, um, news you can trust um, uh, against um, forms of nativism and closure um, and uh, you know I, I see the argument in the Arab world as between the kind of in some of the enlightenment traditions in the in the uh, Arab world um, in Islamic world kind of notably Ataturk and what happened in Turkey the secularization of Turkey um, and actually nativist Fundamentalism expressed itself, expressing itself in jihadism. But it's a similar argument, actually, uh, kind of in advanced de democracies. I mean, are you, are you for um, evidence-based policy, kind of rule of law, diversity, tolerance? Um, in which case, you're a democrat, or are you for nativism, populism, and a kind of fuck you, American first with Donald Trump? Um, and this is where the kind of battle line is kind of uh, is descending. And I, one of the reasons why I'm so passionately pro-European, I think that actually um, um, Europe is um, in the set, is an Enlightenment project. Um, the acquis communautaire are um, Enlightenment acquis communautaire. Um, the four freedoms are the four freedoms of the European Union are Enlightenment freedoms. It's an Enlightenment project. And actually, um, there's a kind of, uh, of course, you have know, an argument within that framework, um, more state, less state, more taxation, less taxation, but they're less fundamental than the are you for those values. Well, what final question then, in, in the Europe context? At the end of the day, therefore, mainstream centre-right parties in Europe and mainstream centre-left parties, like in Germany, for example, are in many ways so similar, they often look, uh, 
uh, governing coalition, or if they take turns <laughs> in government, and it doesn't, you'd be hard pressed sometimes to find significant differences in their in their policy stances. So that's my my only question: Does the centre left, centre right, have any meaning uh, in Europe in, in 2017? We can finish off on that short question. I think in the end. Um, um, centre-left politicians are about mass flourishing and about enfranchising the individual and about willingness to take on concentrations of private power. Um, uh, I think Merkel's found it, it, it took Merkel a long time. She got there in the end, but um, she's finally begun to say critical things about the German motor industry, which should have been said 10 years ago. Um, uh, and a, a lot of um, concentrations of private power in Germany have been allowed kind of too much freedom under the long Christian Democrat hegemony. Um, and I, uh, so it does, and I, and Schultz was trying to get that argument off the ground. And actually, I don't think he was wrong to try and get that argument off the ground. I mean, and, and, and had the wider international kind of conjuncture been kinder, he might have done better. But I mean, you know, the Germans are hunkering down, holding on to Nurse Merkel for fear of something worse. Um, but I, um, I, I think that right-left um, is, um, you know, of course, um, the right is always going to be stress individualism, is always going to worry about the coercive capacity of the state, is always going to be on the side of the status quo, and the left is always going to be on the side of organized labor and the use of public authority in higher taxation. That's a kind of, but I think that that's trumped um, in 2017 and for the foreseeable future by big questions of identity, big questions um, of kind of meta values. Um, Such as what do you mean by meta values? Ones I've described, enlightenment values. Right, okay. uh, I mean, Will Hutton, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much.